Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and how we will meet our future energy needs. My name is Cristina Garcia Duffy. I'm the Director of Research and Technical Capabilities at ORE Catapult, the UK's leading research and innovation centre for offshore renewables. We connect agile technology developers, academics and industry players working to accelerate the UK's wind, wave and tidal energy sectors. Today, we have a new episode in the mini-series, In Conversation With, where we interview senior members of our industry and take a deep dive into their career and passions in offshore renewables. In this next episode, I'm delighted to be joined by the former Managing Director of Marine at the Crown State, Hoop the Royan. Hoop has over 30 years of experience in the energy sector, from oil and gas to offshore wind, and has led the Crown State's work as manager of the seabed, striving to unlock the potential of these unique assets for the benefit of the nation. In October this year, 2022, he stepped down after 10 years to become an advisor. And in today's discussion, we'll dive into more detail of Hoop's career and standout moments, as well as explore the role of research in the development of a sustainable yet profitable offshore wind sector. Welcome, Hoop. It is such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Well, thank you very much, Christina. Really very happy to be here and look forward to sharing some perspectives on what has been and what's going to happen because it's one of the most exciting times for our industry that I've ever seen. Absolutely. I'm very much looking forward for your experiences and your vision for the future. Could you give our listeners a little bit of background of your career so far? I actually did astrophysics at uh, university because that was the subject that had my complete passion and joined Shell in the mid 80s because they had fantastic computing equipment. So I joined Shell in their R&D lab in The Hague. I worked in upstream oil and gas until uh, sometime in the late 90s when I was working in London. We had this thing happening that was the Kyoto Protocol. And uh, we now have COP27 coming up. Uh, We had COP26 last year in Glasgow, COP27 now. This was basically uh, before COP0, when the protocol was being negotiated. It was signed at the end of 1997. And working in Shell, what it really meant was that CO2 was recognized as something that needed to be reduced. There was a lot of angst in Shell at the time about uh, we're in the business of helping people produce CO2. So is this protocol going to be bad for our business? And one of the issues that emerge, of course, is that if you can manage your waste product, your CO2, better than anyone else, then you can turn that into a source of competitive advantage. And uh, it's a point I made at the time at the town hall. And As a result, a little bit later, I was asked to join a small strategy team looking at new business opportunities for Shell in a world of, shall we say, carbon pricing. And with a small team, we identified offshore renewables 
as a potential growth area. It was really exciting stuff, early days, uh, strategy workshops. And in late 97, I was asked to join a a full-time team that was going to explore this business opportunity for Shell. And from January 1998, I have worked in offshore renewables and I haven't looked back since. I worked in Shell for um, until 2010. I had the privilege of working with a small team to make the first offshore turbines happen in Blythe, just off Northumberland, uh, where now our catapult has its uh, fantastic testing facilities. I later went also for Shell to the Netherlands, where in a joint venture with Vattenfall, we developed and built the first offshore wind farm in the Netherlands. And from 2010, 12 onwards, I've been working with the Crown Estate, initially as head of offshore wind and uh, later as the director of the marine business, because, and this is something that we will be touching upon, you can't say offshore wind without saying seabed, making use of the seabed, and that draws the complexity of that marine environment into the equation. So if you like, that's the past, what, 38 years? for you in a brief summary. Thank you for your insights and thank you to the Kyoto Protocol and your internal town hall realization that they were able to set that fantastic team. And it's really interesting your move from traditional oil and gas into renewables. I guess their loss is our gain. (laughs) And something that I think we're likely to see more as we go through the energy transition How did your experience in oil and gas transfer over to your work in renewables? Was there a lot of crossover? Yes, there was a lot of crossover. And I think what I should maybe also say, what may be relevant to people, is the advice that I got at the time from my director. Because people now, sometimes they look at big career changes. And you then wonder, is it a smart thing to make a career change? And I was on this data and analytics, you know, this upstream direction in Shell. And I was asked to join this small team looking at offshore renewables, which looked marginal. It looked quite a marginal, a fringe activity. And my director at that time gave me a piece of advice that said, just take risk in your career, because when you succeed, it's going to be very good. When you don't succeed, you will have learned so much that even that in itself is going to be valuable. And that was such a good piece of advice that I'm uh, forever grateful to him for. And I think with that, I've also felt that in the crossover, so to your question between oil and gas and renewables, the two bits that have stood out for me is the enormous willingness of uh, all those multiple disciplines that you find in a big energy company to come together and to uh, support the development of a new technology area. So the diversity and the richness of the engineering expertise, but also of the commercial expertise in a company like Shell was really uh, inspiring. The other bit was that there was a real focus on health and safety. And if you think about it, oil companies are very good at doing one-off projects with a very high risk profile because you work with explosive uh, liquids and gases, often in a very remote environment. So your control on health and safety is very good. And your engineering on these complex challenges is very good. Offshore wind is, is quite a bit different. The turbines are much simpler structures, despite their intricate engineering. Therefore, the carryover of that 
expertise from oil and gas, which is one-off complex projects onto more repetitive, much simpler projects, isn't quite straightforward. And the focus on health and safety and the debates that it gave rise to, to say what is appropriate as a carryover, not just doing things automatic, but really thinking about what are the risks that these new technologies pose for us? How do we make them operable, safely operable for the people who need to go and build the wind farms to maintain the wind farms in all kinds of weather conditions? It was that debate that I think was a debate that the oil companies were very comfortable with. And as a result, we used health and safety really as a bit of a catalyzer to help develop operating processes, insulation processes. And maybe if I made it was a third one, which is oil companies always think joint venture. They always think about you need to collaborate with others because you rarely have all the skills, all the experience, all the commercial backstory. And one of the great things I felt was about those initial projects in Shell days. They were also all about making the joint venture dynamics work and with very different companies. Shell's first joint venture partner in offshore wind was a company that employed eight people. It was called Borderwind, based in Hexham in Northumberland. Well, (laughs) now try to do a joint venture between a company of eight people and a company of 100,000 people. And it's to the enormous credit of the people in Borderwind that I think they, they managed that in a really good way. So we got real complementary value add. And I think Shell learned a little lesson as well is in how to be humble and uh, recognize the skill in small and medium scale enterprises. And for me, that was also an enormous learning experience. That is fantastic. And I take your point with taking risks uh, as I just moved from aviation into this renewable offshore wind sector, and I hope to not look back. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to the next discussion point of today's episode, offshore wind has grown at an unprecedented pace. I mean, you were talking about 66 meter blades with 1.8 megawatt capacity. Now we're talking about 100 plus meter in length blades and turbines now being tested that are more than 15 megawatts. Now, these technology feeds are the outputs of years of research and development in the sector. What role does R&D play in accelerating the growth of offshore wind? I think R&D is absolutely critical. So research and development. And I would add a second D, which is a D of demonstration. They are absolutely vital. And if you look back to the... 90s when the megawatt scale wind turbines were developed there was a lot of money went into the technology r&d from the public uh, sector because to develop one of these big new wind turbines and get it certified into the market it will easily cost upward of 100 million pounds for the big manufacturers so these are enormously capital intensive projects and making sure that R&D is done to identify all the risks, to minimize the risks, to run numerical models to the highest possible degree, and then to run the testing in controlled onshore circumstances to make sure that the testing drives out the risks, the errors that you could not identify in the numerics. And then to have demonstration projects 
onshore and offshore that drive out the errors that you could not pick up in the testing, in controlled testing circumstances, there's a real hierarchy. And then, of course, you need your launching customers to come in to buy that first generation of commercial turbines. There is a big sequence. And in all of those steps, R&D is important. So each step in that hierarchy, there is innovation, there is R&D, and it is the lubricating oil, if I can use that analogy, of getting a product from an idea into commercial deployment. Earlier this year, the UK government announced plans for an R&D budget that stands at almost 40 billion. This is for the next few years, up to 2025. Government thinking is that this investment will help deliver the government's innovation strategy and drive forward our UK ambitions as a science superpower. How important is investing in R&D? I think it is critically important, Christina. And I can't really say whether the £40 billion number is the right number or not. But what we maybe can do is we can look at what we're trying to achieve with floating wind. So let's look forward and just let's, let's read the numbers in the media these days. So the EU countries, excluding the UK, therefore, they've got a target of 300 gigawatts of offshore wind for 2050. And the UK has got a target of about 100 gigawatts, you know, Committee on Climate Change numbers. So offshore wind is about 400 gigawatts in our part of the world alone. And keep in mind that markets like China are now growing rapidly and are larger than the UK. So we have a market here in the UK alone of 100 gigawatts. Half of that is going to be floating, shall we say, just pick a number. That's 50 gigawatts of floating wind. You want to pick a number on capital cost, but let's just, you know, do a little thought experiment. Let's say the capital cost is going to be 4 million pound a megawatt, then 50 gigawatts, 50,000 megawatts at 4 million pound a megawatt. That is around 200 billion pounds worth of capital investment into floating wind. Now keep in mind that floating wind at the moment, at a global scale, there is less than a gigawatt installed. Therefore, it is still very, very early days for this technology. We have a few demonstration projects. The largest turbines installed on floaters are, I believe, the nine and a half megawatt turbines at Kincardine of Scotland for any foreign listeners. But we have no standardization on the substructures. We have no standardization yet on the dynamic couplings for the cable. We have new technologies that some OEMs want to deploy uh, seabed substations. Now, are we going to see floating substations, fixed substations? All of this technology is still to come. And yet we are planning our energy future, more critical than ever. We are planning it using technology that hasn't yet got the maturity stage where you can now say, I'm going to safely accelerate it. So I believe that when you look in the UK alone, at 200 billion pounds worth of investment into floating wind, that there's going to be a substantial chunk of that that you want to put into R&D, into creating supply chain, 
capability in creating the infrastructure that's needed because only in that way can we really create a systems change that's going to bring the jobs bonanza, that's going to bring the societal transformation that we all uh, aspire to. And that investment has to come early on and it has to be really commensurate with that enormous capital investment. Following on from my last question, where do you think responsibility for investment in R&D for offshore wind lies? Is it government? Is it industry? Does private investment generate different results or have different motives? I think, as always, this is a bit of both. And there is a huge role for public sector investment in R&D. And maybe I can use an example. When you look at COVID, at pharmaceuticals, we could respond as a society very quickly with new vaccines because there was an enormous R&D infrastructure and public knowledge base that was funded by the public sector. So you then get, you, you give companies, private sector, the possibility to quickly develop the vaccines that we needed. And I think in the same way, I would like to see that there is a very strong knowledge base that is public that will give supply chain and private companies the ability to quickly innovate and deliver the products and the services that we need. So there is definitely a role for both. And I will say one thing, which is that if we don't do this in the UK and we don't do it in Europe, it is being done in China. And I think the big strategic challenge for us is how do we retain the critical manufacturing of these components within the UK, within Europe, so that we do not completely become dependent upon imports from from elsewhere. Yes, we want to see healthy trading relationships, but we need to ensure that we invest in the public space to make sure that these strategic technologies are protected. And like anything, there is a level of risk associated with research and innovation. How would you describe the risk appetite within the offshore wind sector? So that depends a little bit which part of the sector you look at. Let's take an example, pension funds. So there are quite a few pension funds that are investing in offshore wind, and they have low risk appetite. They should have low risk appetite because they're investing you know, your and my money, and we want it to be there when we need it. <laughs> and uh, as someone uh, who is closer to the date than you are, that's, uh, of course, an area of keen interest to me. So the pension fund investors are low-risk investors. But then you get uh, developers of all different kinds that, that take increasingly higher risk. And to me, one of the quite impressive developments in the offshore wind sector has been that as a sector, it has become so good in quantifying risk. If I look back at my initial projects, which is looking back, well, 15, 20 years now, it was very difficult to quantify risk. And we had huge contingency amounts, and they sometimes wouldn't even be enough. It was all very difficult. No one knew how to price weather risk. No one knew how to price key component availability risk. And I think as a result, the cost of projects was unnecessarily high because those contingencies, they translate into price. And one of the reasons that offshore wind has seen such a spectacular cost reduction is that the supply chain has become spectacularly good in managing risk. And the ability 
of insulation companies to take weather risk and to be very predictable in building wind farms. The ability of OEMs to provide performance guarantees on turbines, every single area, the supply chain has become spectacularly good in predicting, quantifying and pricing risk. And that is one of the great drivers of success for this market. You touched upon some of the international dynamics. And I wanted to ask, we've spoken a lot about research and investment within the UK. And what about international collaboration? Do we risk becoming siloed into a national way of thinking that will then not benefit the global industry as a whole, you think? I believe that the industry is inherently international. If you look at all the main developers, investors, the turbine manufacturers, the cable manufacturers, the insulation companies, all the lenders, all the finance providers, they're all inherently operating across borders. And therefore, this is an international industry. It is a multinational industry. The bits where we need to get better in collaborating on and where there is a certain silo maybe existing is in areas like the regulatory environment and the consenting environment. Looking to the future, what do you predict we'll see around research and innovation? And you've touched on floating offshore wind and others. Are there any other areas you'd like to elaborate on? Yeah, I think on research and innovation, I think the one area I'm going to call out is the human factor. We have a lot of focus already on areas like for floating wind, better anchors, dynamic cables, the structure of the floater itself, where is it going to be manufactured, etc. All of that focus is there. In the end, these are machines that need to be maintained at some point in time. You can automate what you want. At some point in time, people will need to go there to carry out works. And when I think of a floating wind farm sitting 100 miles offshore, somewhere off the east coast of Scotland, or somewhere in the Celtic seas, I'm thinking about the people that need to go there by boat, by helicopter. They go to a structure that is the size of the Eiffel Tower that is mounted on a vessel which is permanently anchored to the seabed, a vessel that is subject to wave motion that will always have a little bit of a motion. So the tip of that Eiffel Tower, like the mass of a very tall sailing vessel, it will be swaying ever so little, but it will be swaying. And now you put people in that situation, 100 miles offshore. Are they becoming motion sick? How do we deal with motion sickness? How do we deal with emergency evacuation? How do we deal with making these jobs attractive from a people perspective? I think that the human factor on these very large-scale structures is something that is going to become so critical. And it's an area that we are not paying the attention to that we should be doing. That just about wraps us up for today. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share? I would say to anyone listening, offshore renewables is one of the most exciting sectors And if you are considering joining or making a career change, have a very close look and come join us because the UK 
needs people in offshore wind of every ilk, of every trade, every skill, but the world needs them. People are one of the most precious resources that we need to deliver the systems transformation that we require. And that systems transformation will happen in every area. It's not just about offshore turbines. It's about onshore, the community impact of new infrastructure. It's about the energy transition in our society. It critically depends on people. So I would say, come join us. Thank you, Hope. And if you let me have a final note of congratulations for an outstanding career and your dedication to the sector so far. I wish you the best now moving from the Crown State and can't wait to see your next endeavours. Thank you for taking part in this episode of the In Conversation With series of Re-Energize. It's now time to de-energize until next month. In the meantime, listeners can find more about ORE Catapult activities at ore.catapult.org.uk. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at ORE Catapult.